Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, a review of developments in the confirmation process for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Molly Hemingway of The Federalist, and Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network have put together a book of detailed research containing words of caution. You'll be hearing from them. Then, author and family pastor Marty Machowski discussing his new book designed to teach children about sin, temptation, choices, and cleansing in Christ. Plus, Christian musical artist and author Laura Story sharing about her latest book release, which deals with matters of surrendering to the Lord and discussing some of the difficulties that she has endured for God's glory. And on this edition of The Intersection, with the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, someone with a background in the space program, Jay Schaubacher, highlights some of the scientific evidence that is consistent with the biblical account of creation. Finally, from Family Research Council, it's Peter Sprigg, who discussed the recent removal of content from Amazon that points to the possibility of change for someone who is in the homosexual lifestyle or who struggles with unwanted same-sex attraction. This is an action that has wider implications, and you'll be hearing from him. This is the Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. First on this edition of The Intersection, it's Molly Hemingway, Senior Editor at The Federalist, and Carrie Severino, Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network. They are the co-authors of the book Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Together, they commented on the contentious nature of the hearings, the allegations of misconduct, and the implications for the process of confirming high court nominees in the future. Here now are Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway. After that first round of hearings, when the nomination seemed on track to be uh, to be a confirmation, we started getting uh, rumors, a drip, drip, drip of information. There was a very serious allegation of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and it was very surprising because Brett Kavanaugh has a stellar reputation, developed over decades, had gone through six background checks. Uh, when the allegation was rolled out through the media, it was done in a way that made it seem like it was credible, even though it didn't have supporting evidence and, in fact, had things that refuted it or, or otherwise went against it. Um, and at the same time, the White House and the Senate Judiciary Committee was starting to get negative information, sort of negative uh, or just a fuller picture of Christine Blasey Ford, the woman who was accusing Brett Kavanaugh of a mysterious sexual assault that was extremely vague and difficult to either confirm or disprove um, that they chose not to do anything with that information because they knew that in the media environment in which they were existing, they would be treated as being unfair to her, uh, even though she was failing to provide evidence for her allegations. And we, of course, remember the, the, the hearing that took place in one day with uh, Dr. Ford as well as uh, Judge Kavanaugh. So, so, Carrie, did it, was there a point from what the two of you were able to gather in your research where it seemed like that his defenders in the administration, as well as activists like yourself, and, and you had a, a number of pro-life Christian organizations, Concerned Women for America, Susan B. Anthony list. Was there a point when it looked like that uh, perhaps you might have some supporters that would be looking at uh, wanting Judge Kavanaugh to step aside? Well, it's interesting. We saw both sides. We saw a lot of people who were very strong and actually sometimes surprisingly so 
in favor of um, not backing down in the face of these kind of unsupported allegations, uh, both because they, they were confident that they weren't true in this case, but also they saw the, the what this would do to the process. If all you have to do is come up and say something about 35 years ago that has no support, and that's enough to, to tarnish a, someone's reputation for the rest of their life and to, uh, and to out undermine an entire confirmation process, we will see that happen again. And a lot of the people, and it was interesting, some of those groups you mentioned, we talked to people at Susan B. Anthony List who were knocking on doors, talking to voters, and they were outraged by the way that due process was being completely thrown aside by people who just had a partisan goal to get rid of Kavanaugh. Um, people from Concerned Women America who were there at the protests and were frustrated because they were being told, you know, we have to believe all women. But when their women were standing up, even some of whom were survivors of sexual assault themselves, saying, actually, we we understand rep- uh, hearing women out but we also need to make sure that due process is followed it was such a it was such a key issue for them that they became even stronger um although there were obviously many people including some senators who at times were not models of courage and we tell those stories as well well molly i want to follow up on what carrie was just saying with respect to just the whole discussion that we're having with respect to sexual abuse victims, those that claim sexual abuse, and this atmosphere of Me Too. What do you see that this series of events might have to say to those who claim that, well, alleged victims should always be believed? Alleged victims should always be listened to and their accusations should be taken seriously. And one of the ways to take it seriously is to look at whether the allegation has evidence in support of it, or if it does not have evidence in support of it. Uh, the idea that you would just believe people, no matter what they say, regardless of the evidence or lack thereof, is pretty absurd. And yet that was what was happening um, while we were going through the Kavanaugh confirmation battle, this idea that you simply had to believe someone just because they made an allegation. History is rife with examples of people making allegations that are not true, that are not supported by the evidence, and that's why Carrie and I felt it was so important to write justice on trial, because, the, because as she said, the very notion of justice itself was on trial. And we do believe, and this predates our founding, that people are presumed innocent until proven guilty, and that this, uh, this of course, respect to both accuser and accused and make sure that justice is served. Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to Twitter. You can find Carrie at JCN Severino and Molly at MZ Hemingway. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Marty Machowski, Family Life Pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. He talked with me about how he teaches children about sin, temptation, salvation, and cleansing in the book, Don't Blame the Mud, Only Jesus Makes Us Clean. Here now is Marty Machowski. I saw a book uh, in a secular bookstore that uh, had a cloud of a problem following a kid, and you know he wanted to get rid of his problem, and I thought, man, uh, that's a great creative idea, except our problem is sin. And so I wonder if I could create a book that would illustrate and personify sin and temptation and help kids with understanding uh, what is exactly sin and how does temptation work. And so that, of course, is the mud character that you see in Don't Blame the Mud. 
So elaborate just a bit on this character. As you mentioned, the name of the character, Mud, a personification of sin and temptation. So kind of give us a, a little bit of a characterization, if you will. Well, you know, uh, kids absolutely love to play outside, and I was one of them. And there's just something about going towards the mud, you know, playing in the mud, and you convince yourself that you can keep clean. Uh, so the mud represents this enticement, you know, come and play with me. Uh, even though in this case, Max in the story, his mom says, now don't get your school clothes dirty. But but mud is there drawing him fun, pleasure. And then, of course, he goes into the mud and gets dirty and now he experiences the consequences of sin. And that's where mud kind of shows us that uh, there are consequences when we disobey. And of course, the mud on his clothes follows him through the story. And uh, then after, even after he washes the mud away, the mud still in kind of an ethereal way, the character is still there representing that, well, you know, when we sin, we, we might confess, but we have a bigger problem. We need God to take our sinfulness away. And so that's where we see mud following him around until the gospel frees him from mud's grasp. And when we talk about really salvation and what it means to be saved, that's, they, these are some concepts that, that you attempt to make very real to children. So tell me just a bit about how you do that. Well, of course, uh, the Bible is uh, the place where I get the whole idea of sin being uh, a dirtiness that we need to be cleansed from. Uh, if you remember, Peter is refusing uh, to have Jesus wash his feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Again, referring to this deeper cleansing that Peter needs. And, and so I want to communicate to kids not just the bad news, that, that there are bad consequences for our sin, but also the good news that Jesus Christ can save us. He can cleanse us. He can redeem us. Now, those words are theological words, but when we tell the kids the bad news and they understand the consequences of our sin, they appreciate the good news, which is, salvation in Jesus Christ. And I can just appreciate how challenging it can be to really boil that down to a simplistic level that children can understand. What did you find to be, I guess, the most relevant nuggets of truth, if you will, that you wanted to get across in this book, Don't Blame the Mud? Well, I had uh, scriptures um, in the back of my mind, like uh, First John chapter 1, uh, you read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And I wanted to communicate to kids that when they sin and they disobey and they confess, God can wash away their sin and 
cleanse them, not just from what they did, but from all unrighteousness. And I wanted to be able to make that wonderful message simple for kids. And that is the reason why I wrote Don't Blame the Mud. Marty Machowski here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website MartyMachowski.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Christian musical artist and author Laura Story, who shared with me about the importance of surrender, a topic about which she relates in the book, I Give Up, The Secret Joy of a Surrendered Life. Here now is Laura Story. Martin and I, we were married 15 years ago, right before we came to Atlanta, and he was diagnosed with a brain tumor two years into our marriage. And so Blessings was about about five years after that, I feel like that's kind of what the the amount of time that the Lord needed for me to kind of reflect on, you know, like you have a this catastrophic, life-changing situation with your husband having a brain tumor, having surgery, and then hearing from the doctors that barring a miracle, he will always live with a disability. And that was such tough news, not just to hear, you know, as a wife, but as a believer, Mm -hmm. as someone that has always known God to be a healing God and a restoring God, I had to begin to ask the question of, okay, if you're not going to choose to do that healing and restoring work in our lives, what is the work you're going to do? And it took me a a long time to start asking that question, because for a long time I was just saying, okay, God, why aren't you doing it the way that I want you to? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you fixing things? And it it took, I think, that amount of time for me to begin to say, okay, so if you're not doing that healing work, what is the work you're doing? And Blessings was, golly, I, I can't, it's hard to talk about Blessings without crying, because part of the work that God was doing in showing me that there was a greater work he wanted to do, Blessings was a big part of that because we began to hear story after story after story of people hearing from God and and blessings being a big part of their healing and being a big part of their processing through loss that, you know, after your, <laughs> after a while, we just look at all these stories and go, wow, there's no doubt in my mind that God uh, has used this situation for good. And as I understand it, really, some of the adversity that you and Martin and your family have experienced really has gone into the content for this book called I Give Up. So if you would please connect the dots here as far as what you and and your family have gone through and how that really has played into the, the inspiration for this book. Well, the book I Give Up, it's surrender. You know, a lot of people have asked me, so why did you choose this topic? And in a lot of ways, I really felt like this topic chose me. Um, I'll tell you, this is kind of an interesting story. About a year and a half ago when we started this whole process, uh, I was beginning to write the book on surrender just because, uh, honestly, the publishing company said, we, we really feel like this is much of your story. We, we want to see you write on this topic. And I was thinking, oh, gracious. <laughs> I don't because surrender it's so it's so depressing you know this idea of I give up you know I, it's, it's finally relenting but uh, it's so in the process of this I was maybe just a couple weeks into the writing of the book and I went for my 38 week ultrasound with our little our fourth little Timothy 
So at 38 weeks, and after, you know, on your fourth kid, you think, I have been there, I have done that, I've got the T-shirt, you know, thanks, but we're good to go. I, I know what I'm doing here. And at that ultrasound, I remember the tech, as she's like scrolling over my belly and we're watching it up on the screen, anyone that's ever, you know, been through an ultrasound knows what I'm talking about. But we looked up at the screen at the same time and saw as she was uh, running the little thing over his face, we could both just tell that something was wrong. And they called the doctor in, and, and sure enough, the doctor confirmed mm. that Timothy had cleft lip. And even though, like, even as I think back to it, cleft lip, it's very treatable, and, and he's doing so well. Um, but just the shock of finding out that your child has some sort of deformity. And more than anything, the realization that I am not in control. I am not in control of my pregnancy. I'm not in control of the wellness of my children. You know, there are things that I can contribute to this situation, but ultimately the person who is in control is God. And so it was bringing me to a place of saying, not only am I not in control, but I'm learning that that's actually a very freeing place. God calls us to dependence. God prizes weakness. So it's been a process for me to learn to say, you know, I give up God. I, I'm, I'm tired of not feeling like I'm enough, and I'm going to believe that I'm enough because you say that I am. I'm going to believe that any weakness that I have is going to be an opportunity for your strength to shine through. Laura's story here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to laurastorymusic.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You will find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection. You can also find The Intersection podcast in that Media Center, or you can subscribe to it via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through the homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. Audio content from the Meeting House program can be found not only through the website, but also through the Faith Radio app. You can find out more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting the faithradio.org website. Content from the Meeting House can also be found through a number of other apps. Learn more when you visit meetinghouseonline.info. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Jay Schaubacher, author of the book, Scientific Challenges to Evolutionary Theory, How These Challenges Affect Religion. In our conversation, he talked about how science and faith have been integrated in his life and how scientific discoveries are compatible with the biblical account of creation. Here now is Jay Schaubacher. When I started looking at it, I found out, my goodness, there's more than 1,000 Ph.D. scientists that believe in creation, not evolution. And, uh, and there's all kinds of things that are, show the, the truth of the creation. And I start out with uh, the worldwide global flood, because if, if, if we have a worldwide global flood, uh, we have a miracle. And there we have God, and uh, people have discovered the ark on the top of Mount Ararat, 
There's 500 accounts around the world of the worldwide global flood. Uh, clay tablets uh, corroborate the Holy Bible. There's so much in that book of mine. Uh, we could go on and on about it. Uh, Charles Darwin, for one, the creator of the origin of the species, actually had doubts about his theory later on. But having said all that, my mantra is the scientists have proven the impossibility of the theory of evolution. Now we know what to do about it. So uh, that's where I come from. And we have so many things to talk about. Uh, but my plan, I got it from a Confucius. If your plan is for a year, plant rice. If your plan is for 10 years, plant trees. If your plan is for 100 years, educate children. So we're trying to get hmm. creation taught in school or in home schools uh, instead of evolution. And we feel we'll be a better world uh, because of this. Words have meaning, and we know that the evolutionists have have created words, if you will, or they've structured words to actually create a story that religion and science are at odds with one another. And that's what a lot of people believe. They're not aware of these, as you mentioned, 1,000 or so PhD scientists that believe in a creator. The evolutionists would have you believe that that's not true, because if you're a real scientist, well, you can't believe in all this creation stuff. How would you respond to that? Well, in part of the book I mentioned uh, that uh, I was going on a trip with my wife to Mount St. Helens. And uh, at Mount St. Helens, uh, I was excited about uh, learning about uh, what Mount St. Helens has to say about the creation account and, and catastrophic and, and the whole thing. And so I went up to the bookstore and said, uh, do you have any books here that shows how the creation is supported by uh, the, the Mount, Mount St. Helens? And he said, I'm sorry, sir. We only carry books by scientists. And uh, that was entirely backwards from what it should be. I was awestruck. I was upset for him to say that, meaning they think that evolution is scientific. But after I left that, I said, I'm going to have to research this. I'm going to have to write about this. And my research said that it's just backwards. The evolution can try to tell a story, but uh, there's so much evidence from science have been shown to refute the theory of evolution that we have a real case here. And uh, as I thought I mentioned before, uh, the evolutionists have decided not to debate creationist scientists but because they can't win the, 
the debate. Jay Schaubacher here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website scientificchallengestoevolutionarytheory.com. His website is Jay Schaubacher, that's S-C-H-A-B-A-C-K-E-R.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Senior Fellow for Policy Studies for Family Research Council, Peter Sprigg. He provided an analysis on the instance of books by authors on sexual orientation change efforts being removed by Amazon. He's the author of a report called, Are Sexual Orientation Change Efforts Effective? Are They Harmful? What the Evidence Shows, which can be found at the FRC website. Here now is Peter Sprigg. I think it's uh, pretty clear that most of the critics, if not all of the critics of this type of uh, therapy, the sexual orientation change efforts, or what what the critics usually call conversion therapy, although that's not what what practitioners call it. Um, <clears throat> most of the people who are criticizing this therapy have never have never read any of these books. I'm I'm quite convinced of that because some of their charges that they make are in direct contradiction to what is what Dr. Nicolosi and others uh, uh, have written in the in the books that they offer about this. Um, and just for one example, off the top of my head, uh, I'm looking at an article uh, in a in a gay news uh, gay website from from. Great Britain, and uh, the headline says, Amazon removes books by gay cure conversion therapy author. So uh, the idea that um, people uh, say you can be cured of homosexuality is a myth. Dr. Nicolosi says right in his book, I do not use the word cure, I use the word change. He feels that if there, it is possible to experience substantial change, um, even though it's not cured in the sense that you would have an infection being cured. So that, that's just one example of where they oversimplify or just fabricate what, the, what, this, uh, what these books and what this therapy is all about. There has been this attempt, obviously, and, and you're very well aware of it, Peter, to demonize or to really change the accuracy of what what is commonly called conversion therapy reparative therapy is another term that's used you actually referred to the term earlier sexual orientation change efforts and so the the opponents of this type of activity really would want to redefine it to seem like something as i mentioned earlier that's quite sinister and potentially harmful those that have been through some of these efforts and have experienced success, well, they would tell a different story, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And I, I, I want to mention that um, some, some of these so-called survivors tell uh, really kind of fantastic stories about having uh, been subjected to what's called aversion therapy, where some sort of negative or painful stimulus is applied in relationship to homosexual arousal or homosexual attraction in order to create a negative association between them. Now, that's something that was done by some therapists maybe 50 or 60 years ago. It's not being done anywhere in the United States today. It simply is not practiced ever. And uh, all that we're really talking about is talk therapy. All that these therapists do is talk with their client. And this is one of the reasons why even the U.S. Supreme Court has suggested that uh, legal restrictions on this type of therapy actually violate the First Amendment to the Constitution because they violate the freedom of speech of, uh, of the therapist. Um, 
so uh, yeah, that's one of the one of the grave distortions about this type of therapy is the the myth of aversion therapy or the myth that involves some kind of torture. Um, even the, the myth that it involves instilling a sense of shame and guilt in people about their homosexuality. Actually, Dr. Nicolosi does exactly the opposite. His whole point is to help people overcome their shame and guilt. That's one of the chief goals of therapy. And so uh, th- this shows how, how, just how, uh, how these critics do not understand what it is they're criticizing. There's a LifeSite News article that FRC had made available to me that actually features some brief testimonials of people. And now these individuals are petitioning Amazon to reverse this decision. So so perhaps the, the perhaps there is a sleeping giant that has been awakened here. Well, yes, and and uh, I'm I'm happy to say that I was at the Freedom March here in in D.C. that you mentioned, uh, and got to hear some of those powerful testimonies, including maybe the most dramatic was from two uh, two people who were two people who were survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting yes. in Orlando, Florida, uh, just just a little over two years ago, uh, who were who were attendees at that that gay nightclub where where so many people were were horribly murdered, and. Uh, and yet they have since um, uh, found healing for their homosexuality and, and come out of that lifestyle. Peter Sprigg here on The Intersection. The FRC website is frc.org. Well, this has been The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. Content from the Meeting House program can not only be found through the Faith Radio website and the Meeting House homepage, but also through the Faith Radio app. You can learn about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting faithradio.org. It's also available through a number of other apps. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info. And when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can visit faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me on this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I am Bob Crittenden.